This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Empire of Imagination, a book-length biography of Gary Gygax, co-creator of Dungeons & Dragons. Learn more at empireofimagination.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 207 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is David Kushner. His articles have appeared in Wired, The New York Times, Rolling Stone, Spin, and Salon, and he's also the author of several books about video games, including Jacked, which explores the controversy surrounding Grand Theft Auto, and Prepare to Meet Thy Doom, a collection of magazine articles about video games. And we'll be speaking with him today about one of my all-time favorite books, Masters of Doom, which tells the amazing true story behind the creation of the classic video game Doom. And today's show is brought to you by Empire of Imagination, Gary Gygax and the Birth of Dungeons and Dragons. This is a terrific book-length biography of Gary Gygax, co-creator of Dungeons and Dragons, and it was written by Michael Whitwer, who joined us for our panel on the history of Dungeons and Dragons back in episode 170. Empire of Imagination is out now in paperback, and this new edition features an introduction written by John Romero, co-creator of Doom. Dungeons & Dragons is a cornerstone of geek culture, and Gary Gygax was a brilliant, colorful personality, a fixture of the Wisconsin wargaming scene who turned his unusual hobby into a multi-million dollar empire, only to lose it all in an epic betrayal straight out of Game of Thrones. Empire of Imagination tells the story in a fun, accessible way, putting us inside the head of Gary Gygax as he lives through some of the most momentous events in geek history. The book is available online as well as in major bookstores everywhere. In addition to the paperback, Empire of Imagination is also available on Kindle, in hardcover, and as an audible.com audiobook read by Michael's brother, Being Human star Sam Whitwer. Empire of Imagination was named an Amazon.com Best Book of the Month for October 2015 and to GeekDad.com Best Book of 2015. Booklist writes, For fans of role-playing games and D&D specifically, the book is required reading. So again, the book is Empire of Imagination by Michael Whitwer, and you can learn more at empireofimagination.com. I also want to throw in a plug here for a Doom 2 deathmatch map I made back in high school that I'm still really proud of. It's called kprison36.wad, and you can learn more by visiting my website at davidbarkirtley.com, then clicking on blog, then clicking on the link that says best Doom 2 deathmatch map ever. Obviously, I'm a little biased, but I really think that's true. Here's how I described the map in that post. Quote, This has got to be one of the most thoroughly playtested levels in the history of video games. This map is basically what my friends and I did instead of high school. We played this map constantly as I was building it, and over months and months the level evolved to foster ever more elaborate wheels within wheels of strategy. Over a decade later, friends of mine who've already spent hundreds of hours playing this map are still playing it. It's a prison, and there are all sorts of buttons you can push that will open and close certain doors and seal off certain areas and activate certain traps. The basic layout is a ring, and if you're in a stronger position, you can create a block in the ring and then circle around the other way. Alternatively, if you're in the weaker position, you can shut a door and buy yourself some time as your opponent has to circle the ring. If you find yourself trapped in one of the cells, you can either hide and lie in wait for your opponent, or if you've got a rocket launcher, you may decide a strategic suicide is your best option. The level discourages camping, as if you do, your opponent will begin locking you away from all the best weapons. And to really excel, you've got to learn all the ways into and out of the secret passage slash torture chamber. Keith Burgun, host of the Clockwork Game Design Podcast, writes, 
I can totally vouch for this as one of the greatest Doom Deathmatch levels ever devised. To see the map in action, go to YouTube and look up the channel of AX Doomer, who recently recorded a one-on-one duel using this map. If anyone wants to try out the level and send me a demo, I'd love to see it. I invested a gigantic amount of time in building this map, and I think it's really interesting, and different from a design standpoint from any other deathmatch map I've seen. So anyway, the map again is called kprison36.wad, and you can download it from my website at davidbarkertley.com. All right, and so now here's our interview with David Kushner. All right, so we're here with David Kushner. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I really wanted to talk to you about this book because a few weeks ago, my girlfriend's roommate was playing the new Doom game, Mm -hmm. and he's a big gamer, but it came out that he had never actually played the original Doom. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And that really surprised me, but, you know, he's in his 20s. How much much of a gamer can you be? I don't think age is an excuse there. (laughs) you got to represent your history. Yeah, yeah. Well, so for those poor people out there who have not played the original Doom, I, I just want to talk about it because it's so important in the history of gaming, and it's such an amazing story that you talk about in your book. So just for those people who haven't played the original Doom, could you just talk a little bit about what that was like when it came out and why everyone was so excited? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to evoke, I guess, for modern gamers, although you know, I think that every once in a while there is a new game that comes out or a new piece of music or a new TV show that really s- captures everyone's imagination and, and points, you know, in a new direction. And that's what Doom did. Um, you know, at the time, if we go back in time to the, the, the early 90s, late 80s, um, the, the time that preceded Doom, you know, you had an industry that was really very different than the one we know today. Um, and it was an industry that was dominated by, um, these, uh, kind of enigmatic, uh, corporations who seemed to control everything. Uh, it was, they were nicknamed the priests. You know, these are the ones who had all the access. They had all the power. Um, there really wasn't, um, a, 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 a real viable way for just the average, um, person to break into the industry. You know, there wasn't that avenue for ind- independent game development like we have today um, so much. That, uh, so you had a, you had an industry that was really dominated by, at the time, Nintendo. And, and, uh, and this was certainly a world of games where there was no, um, not only was there no blood, but when there were, you know, you had a, a kind of a plumber running around, a lot of happy, puffy clouds. And, um, you know, then all of a sudden you in really out of rising out of a swamp in, um, in Louisiana, you had these guys who had grown up on Dungeons and Dragons and, and heavy metal and, uh, movies like Evil Dead 2. And they wanted to see that sort of content in a game. So, uh, they went about and started making games that, that were games that they wanted to play. And I think this was a big theme of, of, and a big, a big point about why Doom was so successful. And also even going beyond Doom, you know, in the years since then, I've, in the capacity, my capacity as a journalist, as a writer for magazines like Rolling Stone, I've written about, Companies at very early stages, like Facebook, for example, um, you know, in interviewing Mark Zuckerberg in 2005, 
it wasn't dissimilar from talking to the id guys in the sense that, you know, id software being the, the creators of Doomquake, in that, you know, what they had in common is that they were creating uh, a, uh, something to serve a personal need, but by doing that, it had a universal appeal. So with Doom um, and, and the games that preceded it, there were these guys who wanted to have essentially kind of like heavy metal gaming, heavy, heavy metal science fiction, you know, blood and guts gaming. And uh, that's what they made. And sure enough, a lot of people wanted that, you know, and it really just turned the industry inside out, um, in, in ways that went beyond their dreams. And, um, it, it was amazing in, in writing that story, uh, writing that book, really to, to just realize how many firsts Doom had. Um, it's, I think, probably unrivaled in the game industry. And it's, it could, it's, it's, it's hard to compare that even in other mediums. Um, because not only in terms of Doom's content, uh, but in terms of the way that they distributed it, um, and, and the way that they made it accessible to hackers and to gamers, uh, who wanted to, you know, modify, uh, the experience, um, you know, the death matching, uh, the multiplayer gaming, co-op gaming, and the, the first person shooter genre. All these things that we take for granted now really started with, with Doom and those early hit software games. Yeah, like I, I was talking to my girlfriend's roommate and I was telling him when Doom came out, you had never played a game against another person who wasn't on the same screen as you. And you yeah. would just watch them go around a corner and you have no idea where they are. Are they waiting in ambush for me? You know, it was really mm -hmm. intense and scary. And like, he couldn't even imagine that. But just the first time you saw another person on the screen walking around in front of your face. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It is one of those things that if you're old enough to have lived through it, uh, it was completely mind-blowing to, to be able to do that. And... um you know, and it was a great, one of my favorite scenes in the book actually is where, um, the guys, uh, discovered what, what they called death matching. Um, it wasn't really even an intention. It was sort of an afterthought. You know, there had been, uh, I think they were working on co-op gaming and, but there was essentially a way early on for, I can't remember the exact number, maybe four people to hop on and play together, but John Romero, you know, in, in, in his own expressive and magical way, you know, describe the, the moment of, of seeing Carmack, um, uh, Carmack's character on screen running around and then him just kind of, uh, shooting at it and saying, this is unbelievable. I mean, and, and, and it was so fun and, uh, and it remains incredibly fun today, obviously. I mean, if you look at, you look at, you know, esports as something else. I mean, that really rose out of, I think, those early shooters and, and land parties, you know. Um, so it, it's, it was a, a phenomenal fountain of, of, of gamer culture. Yeah. And you talk in the book about how when Doom came out, it was just like productivity ground to a halt all over the country. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, no, it was, and, and I think that it in one of their early press releases said we want to be the number one time killer in the world. 
Um, and they, they, they achieved that goal probably. Um, you know, it's many, many people just, it was, it was, um, in fact, the game that they, they, uh, there were, there were people who nicknamed the game heroinware because it was so addictive. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think the competitiveness of it, the sport, you know, it was, it was really, uh, brought a kind of a, a sporting experience to game that, that people hadn't seen that way. Like, I think, um, you know, just to date myself as someone who grew up in our, in arcades, you know, that was the going to an arcade and playing, um, whatever it was street fighter against your, your buddy and yelling at them. And, you know, that was, that was really fun. And then to be able to do that in doom was, was incredible. So, uh, Yes, it was certainly an efficient uh, time killer. And these days you can just play these multiplayer games at home, but back then it was very unusual for anyone to have two computers hooked up together in their house that could both play Doom. And so people would be playing in schools and offices and you had to be kind of furtive about it a lot of the time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you had to go. So that's this, the you know, in, in a way like college computer uh, labs became almost like do-it-yourself arcades, right? Because that's where you could go and you had computers that were networked together. But what, what ended up happening is that people would just load their computers into their cars and drive over to their buddy's house and, and hook them all up. I mean, this still happens today. Um, you know, I don't know if people still even know the term LAN party, which means local area network party. You know, the, I mean, I remember while reporting Masters of Doom, um, going to an early one in uh, in the middle of Kansas. And, you know, it was just really, it was funny at the time to see someone, you know, who had just driven from five states away, um, lugging their computer into this house. And they had to have their special keyboard and the special mouse. It was like someone showing up with their own, you know, I don't know, tennis racket or, or something to play, to play against <laughs> someone else. Um, so it was all it was all really phenomenally new and, and that not only for the gamers, but for the creators and for the industry. So it, it made it um, a dynamic moment. Right. And so it gets to the point where even Bill Gates wants to associate himself with doom because it's mm -hmm. so popular. Yes, he does. Uh, Bill Gates, you know, um, there, there's a chapter in the book, which is about the launch of windows 95. And um, this was, there was this great, folklore behind that at the time, which was that, um, you know, the story was that I guess Bill Gates knew the, the extent to which Doom was a phenomenon. Um, and later it was reported that there were more copies of Doom than there were Windows 95 or something like that. But, you know, G Bill Gates basically saw Doom as an opportunity to showcase uh, what, what, uh, Windows was capable of. And this is another facet of these games at the time, um, which is that they demanded so much from a computer. Uh, you know, there were people who were buying high end still to this day, but really, especially back then, you know, you had to, you had to really have a, 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 a powerful machine to, to not only run the games, but really experience the games. Um, and now, you know, getting into the, the future games like Quake and all of that. Um, so the, the games were a showcase for technology and, and Gates recognized that. And, um, so he planned this whole Halloween event, um, which, uh, became kind of the stuff of legend because, 
Yeah, it was built around the event was kind of inspired by Doom, and they had the guys who created Doom do a Halloween, uh, gosh, installation, kind of like a haunted house, which ended up involving the the band Guar and some prosthetic uh, genitals and um, you know fake blood and you name it. So it was just like they weren't ready for this at Microsoft, I don't think. Uh, but but also what happened was that that Bill Gates. Uh, had recorded a video where he dressed up in a, in a trench coat with a shotgun, which at the time in 95 didn't have the kind of, you know, the, 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 the connotation, which it now does. And, um, he came out and was shooting imps in the video and then ended by saying like, who do you want to execute today? And, and the, the, the story was that this videotape was lost. It was shown once and quickly just buried and maybe in a desert in New Mexico with all the old Atari ET cartridges. Um, but one point of pride that I take with the writing masters of Dune, which was that afterward, after it came out, some intrepid readers, uh, uh, tracked down the one remaining copy of this video and it's now on the internet for everybody to enjoy. So it, it is absolutely insane to watch it. It's hysterical. Yeah, I just watched that on YouTube. It's yeah. really surreal. <laughs> yeah, unintentionally hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, so tell us a, a bit about the people who made Doom, because your book focuses mostly on John Carmack and John Romero. You call them the ultimate coder and the ultimate gamer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, obviously the, the, the crew at id Software was was larger. There were other people, and there was never my intention to, um, to, to uh, you know, downplay the other people's contributions, but fundamentally at the heart of the story, I mean, you had this, this kind of yin and yang, you had Carmack and Romero, the two Johns, and, you know, it's incredible today to look at where, you know, John, John Carmack, um, at the time and, and certainly now considered, uh, one of the best graphics programmers in the world. Um, and hugely respected. And of course, now as the chief technical officer for Oculus, uh, VR. And, um, you know, I have one chapter calling him, he was the rocket scientist and Romero was the rock star. So yeah, it was really the sort of left brain, right brain, you know, technology and design. Romero was the, was the, the, the guy with the long hair and really into, um, you know, into docking and into blood and guts and, and just wanted to push the design. Um, Carmack was the guy who was creating this incredibly, um, powerful, robust computer engine that could, that could run this and could, um, display graphics that no one had ever seen before. I always kind of looked at the book as, as sort of a geek love story, you know, about these two, these two people coming together. From similar backgrounds, I mean, they, they both came from broken homes. You know, I think one of the reasons that the book is still widely read is because it's, it's really an inspirational story. You know, those don't come along that often. I mean, it was really a scrappy, you know, inspirational startup story of these, these two guys who, um, you know, coded their way out of, um, a tough past to rise to the top of this, this nascent industry. And then ultimately, um, have a rivalry and break apart. So, uh, you know, that, that, that the book kind of charts their whole rise and, and fall and split and, and then, uh, the kind of their legacy. 
Well, yeah, and there's so many things in this book that are just like so perfect, you couldn't even make them up. But in terms of the backgrounds of these guys, like the book opens up with John Romero's in the arcade and his mm -hmm. stepdad finds mm -hmm. him. Like, tell us about that. Yeah, um, <laughs> that, you know, I always thought of that as sort of the, 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 the birth of a superhero moment. I mean, in a way it was, you know, the, the, the story does have like, in fact, I remember one of the reviews that the time talked about it as almost being like a comic book. And it, in a way it was because, you know, they sort of, these were these, um, sort of skinny, nerdy boys who became these larger than life heroes. But for Romero, you know, at the beginning, um, his stepfather caught him. Romero was uh, a guy who was riding around town in California and had this top score in all the, all the games at the arcade. And he, stepfather didn't want him playing. He thought games would, you know, turn his stepson into a degenerate and basically caught Romero playing a game and smashed his face into the machine and, um, you know, ended up uh, beating him up. And it was terrible, really terrible uh, abuse that Romero had to endure. But, you know, uh, John is a guy who, uh, just has this inexhaustible energy supply, very upbeat, positive person about gaming. Um, and, you know, I think that also uh, worked against him later because he really was and remains in a way uh, Doom's greatest fan. And I think that a lot of players in the community didn't know how to take that. They took it as ego and there probably is ego there. But but also he genuinely was just the the biggest fan of the games they were making, so that that created some tension, right? And then Carmack too had broken into a school to steal some computers. Yes, uh, Carmack. You know he also was uh, kind of bumping up against some. You know uh, his his mother didn't think that 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 pursuing a career in gaming was really viable. I mean, this was a different era, you know, keep in mind. So maybe parents had a, had a reason to think that. Um, but, you know, Carmack thought otherwise. He just wanted to, I don't know that really he was even thinking so much about his career. It's just that he wanted to make some uh, cool games and cool programs. So uh, he really wanted an Apple II and he didn't have it. His parents wouldn't get it for him. So, um, he decided to make some homemade thermite, uh, which he then went to, um, you know, which is a, uh, an explosive. And he went to the school with some friends and put some thermite on a window and, um, was able to uh, kind of blast a hole or burn a hole through the window. And they got in and stole computers and he ended up getting busted and sent to a juvenile home. Um, and, uh, so, you know, as I said in the book, the other kids that were in there for drugs and he was in there for an apple too. <laughs> and stealing computers kind of became a bit of a theme in their careers, right? Because later on, they're all working together at this company called SoftDisk and they need, <laughs> they want to work on a project, uh, after work, but they don't have good enough computers. So they end up kind of borrowing the work computer. Yeah. Quote unquote borrowing. <laughs> so they would, they would basically take the computers to their lake house work all night and then bring the computers back. So, um, you know, they were industrious for sure. And, uh, but then it paid off, you know, and then they, they were able to, to make these games that they distributed on their own. And well, with the help of a, a shareware publisher and shareware was something that 
you know, I think this is a story that says as much about business innovation as is about, um, you know, technological innovation. And on the business innovation was that it, this idea that, you know, you give away a little bit of something to get people to want more of it that, that they'll then pay for it, and which actually is something used as a technique used by drug dealers, among others. But, um, but this has actually led to this nickname heroin wear because what they did was, and again, we have to go back in time before the days of the internet. And what you would do is there would be these, uh, there you would get a, um, you know, a floppy disk that had all kinds of programs on it. You know, you pay 10 bucks for it and there'd be a check balancing program and maybe a horoscope program. And then there'd be a sample of this game at the time one of its first games of commander keen and uh then if you were compelled by it and you wanted to play more then you would buy the rest so it was shareware and this is what they did and it completely eliminated there was no middleman um and so there was no retail and, uh, they ended up, uh, making a ton of money, really. I mean, so much so that uh, I think just, um, while still in their teens or certainly maybe very, very early twenties, um, you know, there's the story of them, you know, getting their Ferraris and driving up to a bank and depositing, you know, a seven figure check, uh, in the drive through. I mean, they were just, it, it was, it was unheard of too. So they, in a way, they were the, the kind of original dot com you know, uh, young sort of multimillionaires too. Right. And what really has stuck with me about this book is, is this period you talk about where they're, they're making Commander Keen and they're making Wolfenstein and Doom and they're just, everything's going great. And I think the book just captures more than anything else I've ever read, just the excitement of working on something that you know is going to be big and that you're just in Mm -hmm. love with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they, I don't know that they could have ever predicted exactly how big it was going to be, but they definitely knew that they had made something that was awesome because it was just clear anyone who played it and, and, you know, and, 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 and again, I mean, I think that Romero, um, in a way you could almost look at John as like, he was like a great, uh, almost like, uh, like a great A&R executive at a record label. You know, he, had, he just had an ear. He, he knew what made a great game. So when you had something like that, and he, he had that attention to detail, um, and then you had Carmack making this technology so that you could do deathmatching, you know? Um, so that, and, you know, and, and I think the, the concession that they made to hackers was completely radical, uh, of subversive for even. Um, I mean, business people just thought they were nuts. Why would you want to get, why would we want to make a piece of software that, uh, somebody could manipulate and, and change? Like that seems crazy, you know, and then they could change it and maybe they would sell it themselves. I mean, there were a lot of people who did not believe in this idea at all. And that's still coming out of the era of Nintendo when everything was just, you know, totally locked up. Um, but these guys said, no, listen, it's fun to mess around with, with, with code. So, um, you know, uh, after they saw someone put a Barney the dinosaur into, uh, Wolfenstein, um, instead of a Nazi that you could shoot, shoot Barney the dinosaur, they said, this is incredible. You know, let's, let's make this really easy to do in Doom. So, or somewhat easy, actually. So they, 
Carmack created a system so you could kind of get in there and move files around. And, and sure enough, that seeded, um, the community of, of mod makers, which it's really, it's like you said, there's so much that you couldn't make up. I mean, it almost sounds like you're, you're being hyperbolic, but the, the community that grew out of the Doom and Quake mods, you know, you're talking about some of the biggest companies in that, in that world right now. I mean, Valve, um, came out of that mod world. Uh, you know, you also had, um, you know, Bungie, um, future makers of Halo. I mean, they started out with a Doom ripoff called Marathon, you know, for Mac. Um, you know, you had, you have Epic software. I mean, there's just so many. And then you had a generation of players who really, um, that was their experience with coding to the point at which someone told me in the industry that like, you know, having a Quake mod became the sort of default resume for, for somebody applying, um, for jobs. So. Yeah, well, and then, I mean, just another of these things that you couldn't make up is that they were all playing Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. and their Dungeons and Dragons games weirdly mirrored and or prefigured things that happened in their real lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and obviously, I mean, D&D is a, is a cornerstone of geek culture, um, and uh, this was a great example of how influential that game really was um in a in a whole different genre um you know these guys it's interesting too because it never made role playing games you know you'd almost expect them to have gone on to become blizzard or something like that um but but they they didn't you know that but they were they were playing these games um that were reflections of their personalities and and some of the the items uh within the game went on to um you know for example quake was a character um in their D campaign the daikatana which was a game that romero later put out was a uh you know a weapon in their game so yes they did kind of live out their fantasies and conflicts in their dungeons and dragons campaigns and i think they also actually um, sort of played around with game design. I mean, Carmack, you know, Carmack is, as anyone is, is much more complex maybe than people realize or think about. Um, and while he is this fantastic programmer, you know, he's also incredibly imaginative too. And I think that, you know, the D&D games that he made, he was the DM, were, were very elaborate. And these, um, so he was a creative person as well. And so, you know, the D&D uh, campaigns were a way for them to sort of get their feet wet. Right. But there's th- such a striking thing that happens where basically Romero destroys Carmack's world through his own recklessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the D&D world, which, again, for a non-D&D player, sounds just... This, you know, we're, we're in the far reaches of like uh, the, the geek universe here, but, but the idea that you can destroy a D&D game. But, you know, essentially the, the campaign, um, is something that has its own rules and it's, a, it's, it's its own, in a way, kind of like a virtual world, um, that just exists in everybody's heads and maybe on paper. And Romero did violate, uh, um, a rule, um, uh, that Carmack had set up, which was basically that he, um, Summon the demons from hell, who then, you know, destroyed the world. 
And, um, so yes, it was all, it was interesting because it did foreshadow a lot. It foreshadowed, um, games that they made. It foreshadowed conflicts that they had. So, um, it was an interesting part of their story. Yeah. Well, so tell us about how did you get involved in this story? How did you come to write a book about Doom? Well, I was a big geek, basically, who wanted to write a book. Yeah, I mean, essentially, I'll never forget, you know, there was a moment where I, you know, I did, I had grown up playing games, not a programmer, but big gamer and, and you know, very early on the internet. Um, and I just, you know, at one point walked into a Barnes and Noble and I was looking around and I saw these books on sports and film and art and politics. And then I said, where's the books on games? Because I thought that that there were these incredible stories to be told. Um, not technical stories so much, but just these great kind of human stories. Um, and so I did writing about, uh, some of the, actually the very first magazine article I wrote, feature story I wrote was about, um, Quake clans, like teams of Quake players. And that got me into this world. That was in the mid nineties. And then it was sort of one of these three in the morning, like epiphanies where I said, well, gee, you know, I could do a book about Carmack and Romero, like they're perfect characters. And this whole, at the time, I'm trying to think when I first started, I, I'm pretty sure they had, they had not been split up very long. And so there was a rivalry and there was the influence. And I really, from day one, I always saw this story as kind of a great, you know, I'm a big fan of rock biographies, like Hammer of the Gods, story of Led Zeppelin is one of my favorite books of all time. And like, to me, this was like, a, this is almost like Hammer of the Gods for gaming. Um, and I said, okay, I'm in, I'm totally in. And, uh, and, you know, and, and, uh, basically just packed my bags and moved down to Dallas. And, um, you know, because game developers are nocturnal. So I needed to just be there, you know, and, and it was just, it was a, it was great. I, you know, I don't know that you couldn't do that kind of book today, actually. Um, so much because it was, you know, I, I had a, basically I had an open door to go show up whenever I wanted. And I did. And so I just hung out a lot, uh, you know, would interview Kishoba Romero's house at midnight and, you know, um, talk to Carmack and, uh, you know, and then talk to everybody else. So it, it was, it was an incredible amount of fun to, to write. I heard you say in an interview that you were taking a big risk by moving to Dallas like that. What, what mm -hmm. was the risk? What was the big risk? Well, that it could suck, <laughs> I suppose. You know, I mean, the risk was also that, um, not, I mean, not that just that Dallas could suck, which it, it could, and in parts, in certain ways, I thought it did, but that, you know, the risk being that I didn't know really, I mean, I, these guys were on board, but, you know, you don't really, as a, as a journalist, you, you really don't know what you're going to get from somebody. Um, and some, often what you hear is just about them is completely, false in terms of how open or how closed they are. So it's a crapshoot. Um, but so I did kind of move uh, on, on, uh, 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 you know, it was a gamble because I could have gone down there and a lot of people were telling me, you'll never get Carmack to say anything interesting. He's just a, a walking robot. Um, you know, and that really wasn't true. I mean, the, you know, Carmack, uh, we had great conversations so, um, it was a risk in that sense that I didn't know what I'd get from everybody, but I got so much and I got so much more than I, I mean, every day it was just hearing these stories that were just, you know, for example, um, there's a great story about Romero. I believe, uh, it was Romero got locked in a, in a room 
at the office and John Carmack had blown some of his, uh, uh, doom money on a, or Wolfenstein money on a, on a old, on a battle axe. And, you know, and the next thing you know, he's like chopping down the door and everyone's chanting battle axe. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, those kind of moments that were just so fantastic. So it was, it was essential to be there. Right. And so you mentioned that at the time that you met them, they had just had this big falling out. Could you explain a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, you know, they had, Carmack himself once wrote online that he said that, um, you know, I just, uh, Romero wants a, to build an empire and I just want to write great programs. And I, I think that was essentially what their divide was. Um, it really wasn't so much that one was better or worse or right or wrong. It was just different ambitions. Um, Romero did want an empire. I mean, he wanted, and he went out and built one, um, and, uh, it, it ended up not doing so well, or, or actually, you know, it did better than people realize, I should say. Um, this is his company, Iron Storm. They, they actually put out games that did well, but his particular title, Daikatana, didn't do great. Um, but they, um, uh, you know, Carmack was, Sort of more of like the lean, mean machine focused on the code. Um, you know, Romero was focused on wanting to have a big studio, churn out all kinds of games. Um, he was really into like the persona and the rock star life. Carmack was really much more into, he just, you know, had this line where he said, just put me in a room with enough pizza and Diet Coke and a computer and then that's all I need. So that, 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 there was a fundamental conflict there. And ultimately, um, uh, after Quake, that's what really split them apart. Right. And so, yeah, so then Romero goes on to found his company, Ion Storm, which one of the executives there described as they wanted it to be like the Willy Wonka of the gaming mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Ion Storm, for those who remember it at the time, I mean, Daikatano almost became like the water world of gaming, you know, or the heaven's gate of gaming. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it was a famous disaster in the press. I mean, the press just savaged it before it came out. It was basic story was that it was going to be, you know, this was going to be the most ambitious game ever made. And, uh, it, in fact, it was so ambitious that it just, uh, it, it, it never really came out. It, it kept being delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And then it, when it finally came out, it just seemed, it didn't really live up to the hype. And, um, but at the same time, Romero built this studio where he had other people making games. And there were some great games that came out on Iron Storm. I mean, um, Warren Spector, uh, put out a game called Deus Ex, which is, was really well, um, received. And Tom Hall put out this game called Anachronox. Um, so, you know, they did some good work there, but it was, it was an epic, uh, disaster of ambition in a lot of other ways. Yeah. Cause I actually had a friend, when I was in college, I had a friend who was working at Ion Storm. And so I oh, went really? out, yeah, I went out there for a week for spring break and, I thought it was more, to, to my mind, it was more sort of Pleasure Island than Willy Wonka. <laughs> it, it just seemed like things were totally out of control. I could just tell it was going to be a, it was not going to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they bought, you know, I mean, Romero got this like 20,000 square foot penthouse office on the top of uh, the Chase Banking Building in Dallas. And that was another one of my favorite anecdotes was how, you know, it was, it had actually a glass ceiling and it looks cool, but then, you know, when you realize that you're 50 odd stories up in toward the Dallas sun, that's not a great thing. So they, 
had to spend just tons of money trying to figure out how to keep the sun out because not only is it hot, but when you're making games, the worst thing you can have is a, the sun glaring onto your screen. So they tried all of these elaborate means and shades and like these cloud things that would, you know, move across the ceiling. None of it worked. And I was actually there when this was going on and it was hysterical because one day what happened, you know, they just sent out one guy just said, screw it. And he just went to Home Depot and he came back with a bunch of this big black sort of fabric, you know, thick, I don't know, kind of industrial um fabric tarp or something. And they strolled it over all of the cubicles so that when you walked in, all you saw was these big black mounds. And then you would occasionally see a gamer sort of emerge from, from the stinky mound, <laughs> you know? So it was really, it, yeah, it, it was, it was pretty funny at the time, but, um, you know, and then in contrast to, to id software and John Carmack, who, you know, would be happy again, just working in a metal chair. I mean, it wasn't a, a, with the, with a, with the card table. I mean, that was about all they had there. <laughs> well, my friends had told me who was working in there had said that the a, the enemy AI was just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I got there, it wasn't working at all anymore. And he said that the guy who had programmed it had quit. And mm-hmm. then the guy who came in didn't, uh, didn't understand the first guy's code. And so they had to completely start over and mm-hmm. I mean, people were just quitting all the time. And it was just, Crazy. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I think, I think making a great game and running a company are, are not, are two different skill sets. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was also this bit, this thing that happened where there was this ad that said John Romero is going to make you his bitch. Mm-hmm. They kind of really. Yeah, that rubbed people the wrong way. <laughs> that, that, that rubbed some people the wrong way. Um, you know, there was, uh, there was a lot of, uh, bravado behind the marketing of it. I mean, again, going back to that period of time, now we're talking about late nineties. Um, you know, it was, it was the other thing is that you had Texas was at the heart of the game. It was Texas. It was sort of odd. You know, you don't think of Texas as churning out, not just Texas, like Austin, Texas, but you know, you're talking about these guys are in Mesquite. I mean, they're in this little like cowboy town and they're churning out these games. And there was a kind of, uh, um, you know, there was a bit of a cowboy. It was very, it was brash bravado. It was like, I'm going to kick your ass. It was the beginnings of death matching. So they try to reflect that in the, in the marketing and ads, but it, 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 it didn't go over too well, especially when the game that it was hyping wasn't coming out. And, you know, people felt that it, and when it did, it didn't deliver. So that sort of didn't work. Right. And so your book kind of ends with Ion Storm imploding and Carmack getting ready for Doom 3. Um, and so then what, what was the response to the book? Like, what did people think about it? Well, you know, fortunately, people are still reading it now. I mean, I think that it's had a really interesting life of its own, I have to say. I mean, I've written many stories for magazines. I've written a number of books. You know, Masters of Doom is a very unique one because I really do feel like it, it, it's just got a total life of its own. And, um, it's, uh, it's, it always kind of sells very steadily and people are always discovering it. And I do think that it's, you know, it's found its place, um, as, uh, as a kind of a go-to book if you want to 
if you're interested in the in the game and not just the game industry but software industry and i think you know i'll take some credit because i wrote it um i also think it's just it was just this this incredible um moment in time that i was able i was fortunate enough to be able to be there and capture and it's just still continues to capture so many imaginations and again i think it's the inspirational part of it and it's also you know, that the life that these guys, you know, the, the sort of, in a weird way, not even a weird way, but Masters of Doom in a way is, it's kind of a prequel to the world of VR that we're in now. I mean, John Carmack, you know, all of the id games were really kind of baby steps into virtual reality. And I, we talked about that very, very explicitly. In fact, I think that's a very, a big theme of Masters of Doom was this idea of these guys, um, starting with the holodeck. Um, you know, from Star Trek that they wanted, Carmack had this line, uh, I mean, I'll share with you an interesting little anecdote about what happened after the book came out. Um, you know, in the book, Carmack has a line where he says, he had said to me that he thinks it's a moral imperative to create virtual reality. And what he meant by that was, uh, that, you know, virtu- in a virtual world, there's, there potentially there's unlimited resources, you know, there's this whole different economy. Um, you know, somebody who could live in squalor could live in this, in uh, a mansion in a virtual world. Um, and so he did feel like there was this moral imperative to, to, to bring this to life. And, and again, being weaned on the holodeck and this idea of stepping into a, a world of, of fantasy that, that feels real. That was all, that was just the ultimate geek dream. So. Uh, the book comes out and then what happened was, um, uh, there was a young guy who read it, who read Masters of Doom around the time it came out. And he was very intrigued by this idea of, uh, of virtual reality being a moral imperative and was a huge fan of John Carmack's. And he ended up tinkering with, um, creating his own virtual reality gear and uh, the, it was made it in his garage and Carmack ended up seeing it um, kind of hearing about it through the grapevine and thought it was uh, really incredible and said, can I help to spread the word about this? And, you know, the, the, the person who he was helping was Palmer Lucky who ended up, um, becoming, you know, he was the creator of, uh, Oculus and, um, John Carmack ended up going to work, leave software, id software and to go work with, uh, Palmer and become the CTO. So it all became kind of full circle and I don't take total credit <laughs> for bringing them together, but I, uh, I will gladly accept some Facebook shares in, in return for that. But, um, you know, it's just, I think the, the, the bigger, Point of that too is just that, um, these games, it was not just about Doom and Quake and all of that, but it really was that, that these guys were chipping away at a larger virtual, uh, reality, which is now really coming in, into, uh, fruition. Yeah. Well, I mean, that must be really exciting though to have, to write a book and then you kind of become part of the story in that way. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's cool. I think it's also something that happens when you've just been around for a while like I have. But yeah, no, it was very cool. And it was, you know, it's exciting to see um, where the characters in the book have gone. I mean, Romero 
um, you know, uh, had a great deal of success also in ways that were kind of quiet. People didn't really know what he was up to, but, you know, working on, um, on other games, uh, and also working as kind of, uh, um, <laughs> not quite, well, I guess an el- you're an elder statesman when you're in your forties in the game industry, but, you know, R- Romero also became, um, he's just an incredible source of knowledge and history and got involved in education, um, of, uh, of game education and, um, is now, you know, continue to make games and is actually now, reunited with Adrian Carmack, um, not relation to John Carmack, to make a new shooter. So, um, they're, they're all still around. And, and a lot of people who, some of the others who worked on some of these early games like Quake, um, are also working with Carmack at Oculus. Um, so, you know, people are still at, very active in the, in the game community. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Adrian Carmack. I just kind of want to mention him because I didn't even realize that he he also has kind of an interesting backstory where he had spent a while. His job was photocopying pictures of people's emergency room mishaps. Mm -hmm. And he developed this huge sort of mental catalog of grotesquery. Yeah. No, Adrian's Adrian's was a really talented artist. He was the main artist behind those games. And, um, in fact, in Doom, I remember there was a story about, uh, yes, I mean, Adrian, he, 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 he would see all these photos and he kind of liked that gruesome imagery, you know, the HR Geiger kind of art. And, um, there was a story in Doom where I believe another artist, Kevin Cloud, skinned his knee or elbow and they scanned it and they used it as a, as a texture for walls in Doom. So, um, you know, it was kind of like, they were also, you know, they were just anything went. I mean, in a way they were kind of punk, they were kind of a punk band too, even though they had heavy metal influences. They were punk in the sense they just didn't, they just really didn't care. Like they just did what they wanted to do. And um, I think that's also what makes their story appealing. Right. There's a part where you quote the guy, I think it was the guy who founded Dwango, who you say that he, he wasn't really into games, but he was savvy enough to realize that this, the gaming was the new rock and roll and these guys were the new rock stars. Yeah, yeah, I think they were, um, because, it, partly because it's like, it was wish fulfillment, you know, people were like, wow, look at these guys, they're making these really cool games, they're making all this money, um, you know, no one had really had, had so much seen that before, um, and then, you know, and also there was an element of danger, um, you know, when these games started to get blamed for inciting people to real life violence, I mean, you know, Doom was, Doom got a lot, got blamed for, um, you know, an early school shooting. And then, of course, for Columbine, it became, you know, one of the many targets. Right, which is funny because you go and look at Doom now and it just kind of looks like a cartoon. Well, I think it always did. I mean, I think in the sense of, you know, uh, but being like rock and roll, I mean, you, it was a bit of a generation gap where you had people who never played it, didn't really know anything about it other than that the name was called Doom and there were like, you know, zombie uh, demons in it. And so they, you know, Doom, Doom just like D and D and just like, uh, you know, Judas Priest got a lot of the blame for, you know, uh, dis- 
destroying the fabric of, of youth culture. But now that all seems, I think, pretty silly. Um, I think that as gamers have kind of grown up and taken over, you know, people don't, you know, it's like they used to worry about Elvis Presley, um, you know, showing him his, from the waist down on TV dancing, you know, destroys people's minds. So I think we've, we've figured that, that that's not such a, such an issue. Well, it's funny because in the book, you quote these congressmen talking about Doom and describing the game, and they'll say stuff like, oh, or like the, in Quake, the most powerful weapon is the chainsaw, and you get the most points for using it. And the stuff that it's clear that they never played the game. And like, where are they even getting these details from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, look, it's this hasn't gone away entirely. And, and certainly in the days after Doom, you had, uh, you had Grand Theft Auto um, was a huge lightning rod. But, but again, I think that it's, this is a pattern that, that repeats itself, you know, something that's new, um, something that's a, a sort of coming out of youth culture. People don't understand it. They're afraid of it. And then it becomes normalized. So, um, you know, Doom fulfilled that role for, for a while, certainly. Well, yeah. And, and speaking of Grand Theft Auto, you actually wrote a book about Rockstar Games as well. Yeah, I did. I, I wrote, uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Jacked, which was, uh, the story of Rockstar Games and, um, Jack Thompson, who was a gamers probably remember, um, who was a kind of a crusading, um, culture warrior, uh, attorney who, who, who vowed to destroy Rockstar Games. Uh, yeah, but obviously, uh, he didn't, he didn't succeed. Didn't succeed. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, and then you also have another sort of new audiobook out that I, I really enjoyed as well called Prepare to Meet Thy Doom, which is also video game related articles. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks. Um, yep. And it's read by Will, Will Wheaton, who actually also uh, reads the audiobook version of Masters of Doom, which if you're into audiobooks, I highly recommend it because he's really funny and he, he actually takes on the different voices and everything. But yes, the Prepare to Meet Thy Doom is a collection of my game stories read by Will Wheaton. And it also includes um, sort of a updated, you know, update uh, epilogue to Masses of Doom, catching up with, um, I caught up with Romero and Carmack and, and um, sort, of, sort of brings it up to the, the present day. Right. It was funny, um, you know, yeah, like Will Wheaton does all these voices, like he does a Clinton impersonation and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And one review I read noticed, which is completely true, is that he's so excited at some parts reading mm-hmm. Masters of Doom, like you can hear it in his voice. He almost mm-hmm. can't contain his enthusiasm. <laughs> oh, listen, man, I was so psyched to have him do it. I think he's great. So, yeah, it was very cool. Right, and so and you still, I guess, do you still keep in touch with Romero and Carmack, or what's that? Like? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I do now and then. I do, and um, you know, I, I spoke with him not long ago for this uh, this update that I did, um, and you know, I've got a soft spot for this one because it was my first book, and um, I'm, I'm I, I hear from people constantly about it, and some really amazing stories, like the guy, one of the co-founders of Reddit you know, basically wrote a whole blog about how uh, Masters of Doom was the book that inspired him to start Reddit. Um, and I love hearing that. I love hearing it. Really just, well, what I love about it is that people get fired up. I mean, I think that's the biggest comment that I hear, like you said about Will Wheaton. Um, 
you know, there's just something really inspirational in this story and very energizing to people to kind of, you know, go do whatever they want to do. So I, I really enjoy that response in particular. Very gratifying. Yeah, and I also just want to mention in Prepare to Meet Thy Doom, I mean, like you said, it's a bunch of different magazine articles, but there was one about Yvonne Lyon that I just found so, so moving and interesting. Yeah, that was, um, you know, Sean Smith was one of the four diplomats killed in uh, Benghazi, and he um, also happened to be a very, very prominent um, gamer on EVE Online. And so that was a story that kind of looked in, at his on on his li- dual lives of diplomacy, because um, he was kind of a diplomat in the world of EVE and also in real life, and just tr- tragically um uh, you know died in in Benghazi not only that that but as as uh they were being attacked he was actually online with some of his gamer friends and was was chatting with them so um that was that that's a heartbreaking story yeah just i mean i was really kind of getting emotional i mean yeah. they they um organized sort of a uh what would you call it like a Visual? Uh, a, a, yeah, with with the spaceships out in space, mm-hmm. just the way you wrote it is is just really beautiful. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a sad story, but um, but it also I think um, you know really it, it it did it did sort of capture uh, how important these these communities are to to players and how real it is, and I think that also. You know, going back to what we were saying before, it flies in the face of a lot of the, um, uh, you know, sort of the negative attention that games got and still get to some degree. People thinking that people are addicted and isolated, which, listen, people can be addicted and isolated watching TV, you know, but the, the reality is with games, there's been always, there's been a tremendous community there too. And, um, that's what Sean Smith, uh, you know, was part of before he died. Right. Are you still in touch with anyone who's still at id? Did you have any? No, no. Well, I mean, I know about the new game, but no, I mean, actually, uh, as I, as I noted in the, um, in the sort of new update I wrote to Masters of Doom, you know, the new, this is the first Doom without either Carmack or Romero. Involved, so most of the a lot, of, you know, the, the the original team is no longer there, um, and you know, and that's not to say that the new team is not doing well. Of course, they're doing very well and they're carrying on the spirit, but you know, it is sort of the end of the era. Yeah, yeah. Have you played the new Doom? Like, do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's fun. I mean, I enjoy it, but you know, it's um, I don't know, it's a little hard for me to. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, when it comes to music too, I'm super nerdy. Like, I'm real loyal to, like, the, I wanna, you know, the fact that the Pixies don't have Kim Deal playing bass anymore. As much as I'm a huge fan of the Pixies, like, they're just not the, it's not the Pixies anymore for me. So maybe there's a little bit of that in me with, when it comes to Doom. But, um, you know, I, I still appreciate it and I, and I can see, you know, a lot of people really are enjoying it out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like I still feel that way about, like, nothing's ever been the same for me since Doom 2. Everything that they've added since then is just rocket jumping. Who needs it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one could say that, you know, one one could certainly say that. And, um, 
but, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's so much new, I mean, the stuff that Carmack's doing, you know, on the, the gear with Oculus, I mean, that's the, the, you know, in a way, I think we're kind of, these are the pong years for virtual reality, you know, just like those are the pong years for gaming. So there's really, this is the beginning of a whole nother chapter. Yeah, so will you be writing Masters of Oculus? Masters of Oculus. Well, I do have actually a story in the new Rolling Stone, although it won't be the new Rolling Stone when you when this runs, maybe. But I, I did write a, a a feature story all about Oculus um, that just came out in Rolling Stone. Oh, cool. What's it called? Uh, it's called "Will Virtual Reality Change Your Life" or something like that. Um, <laughs> I can't remember exactly. Um, you know, one thing is writers don't necessarily come up with headlines for their magazine stories. A lot of people don't realize that. But um, and in the day of the internet, in the now on the internet, headlines change. You know, they'll change the headlines as they're online, so it's hard to keep track. Yeah, no, I mean, if with, I've certainly experienced that with this podcast. When it goes up on Wired.com, they often mm-hmm. change the headlines, and then people are like, sure. "No, I hate you! I hate right. that! I hate you yeah, so yeah. much!" And based on all the SEO and the metrics and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so David, so we're pretty much out of time. Do you just have any other projects you want to mention or final thoughts or anything? Well, no, just thanks for having me on. Thanks to everybody who has read Masters of Doom and who, you know, keep telling your friends to read it. And, um, you know, it was, it was fun talking to you. Yeah. All right, so we've been speaking with David Kushner. I highly, highly recommend Masters of Doom, one of my all-time favorite books. So, David, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to David Kushner for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Isabel Thomas, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for today's show, Empire of Imagination by Michael Whitworth. Learn more over at empireofimagination.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.